Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is your girl, Mitzi, and this is Mitzi. Let's think about it. Today, we are thinking about conquering your fears. Hmm. And that's something to really think about. So luckily for me, I have a special guest named Renew Purify. I think I said it right. Um, or I bashed it. I apologize. <laughs> we practiced well, before. Close enough. <laughs> right, close enough. A for effort. Yeah. Um, and he's going to be giving us all his perspective on this matter, because let's be honest, sometimes if we just think about this type of things ourselves, we can get lost. And you know what? We need some guidance. So thank you so much for being my show. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. It's uh, fun to be here. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So glad to hear that. So I guess to really start, how can we first acknowledge our fears to be able to even conquer them? Well, uh, fear, fear is threat, right? And uh, fear can be expressed in a lot of different ways. It can just be a, sort of an anxious feeling that a person has, and it ranges from that to you know having people panic attacks. Uh, I dealt a lot with panic disorder, uh, but certain everyday uh, fears, apprehension. You got a, a test coming up, or an interview coming up, or maybe you're going out on that first date, or whatever. <laughs> You know, and and you got some nerves going on, uh, and you know that's uh, those are the various ways that is expressed in your body, yeah. and a lot of times people will do things. They have little habits that they do to comfort themselves. Uh, you know, it might be you know chewing on their nails or finger, you know, or smoking or whatever. You know, there's a variety of things that people do to kind of self soothe. Yeah, and. But we see a lot out of the time that people say that you can feed your fear, I mean, feed your sadness and feed your anger. So do you believe that you can also feed your fear as well? Well, certainly. Self-talk is, is a lot to do with it. I, I know working at the, the the very strong end of fear, people that have panic disorder, uh, they would do a couple things that are common with everybody. One is something called negative anticipation or what if thinking. You know, what if this, what if that? And some people, that's a habit pattern that they get into. And uh, when you work with what if thinking, there's essentially uh, uh, a few things you do. First of all, uh, people that that are fearful, they do a lot of what's called emotional reasoning. And that means if it feels like something's true, it must be true. So, for example, people with panic disorder, one of the things that they would fear would be passing out. So I'd say, so what are the odds that you're going to pass out when you go to the grocery store? And they would say something, oh, maybe 50%. So then I'd say, how often have you passed out? Well, I've never passed out. So based on reality, the you know the odds are very low, but based on how they feel about it, the odds are high. Same thing with taking a test or other things. You know, um, if I have a student, I, you know, well, I'm going to fail this test. How often have you failed? Well, very rarely. So the odds are actually very low, even though you're anxious and you feel like it. So taking a, a, a realistic perspective as to how, how what are the odds that this fear or this fearful thing is going to take place? Mm -hmm. Second thing people do is they exaggerate the awfulness of it. So, you know, so if you pass out in a store or if you fail the test, uh, how bad is that on a scale of one to 10? Oh, that's probably a 12. Okay, so let's compare that with a 10 being, you know, getting your arm cut off, your kid killed or having cancer or something like that. How bad is that? Well, now it goes way down the scale, right? Maybe it's a one or a two. So people exaggerate the likelihood that something's going to happen and they exaggerate how awful it's going to be. And then the next thing, of course, once you get those under control is how can I prevent it? You know, what can I do to prevent it? So with the panic disorder people, there were things that they could do that could you know, help to, you know, work with their breathing distraction techniques and stuff. 
uh, with something like a, a test, well, okay, I can make sure I study, right? <laughs> uh, or be prepared for the interview. I can, you know, think of, you know, rehearse with somebody if I need to. Um, and then what would I do if the worst thing did happen? Well, and then you come up with a plan of action. People who deal with fear well, they they automatically do those things. They they do a realistic assessment of how likely it's going to be. They uh, do a realistic assessment of how bad it would be, and then they come up with a plan for preventing the bad thing to happen and coping with it if it would. And if you grew up in a family where that's modeled for you, that's just kind of a natural thing that you do. And if you grew up in a family where you have somebody who worries and frets or who does all the negative things, then that tends to be what you do. So those are all skills you can learn though. Yeah, that makes sense. And I spoke with another person about fears and she kind of brought up the point of loving your fears by self-talk. And from what you just said, it sounds like if you flip the script when you're doing that self-talk, instead of going down the negative path of what is and down all those negative areas that you can talk your way out of it. I mean, that's that's something interesting that it just kind of puts together. But it seems like a lot of the times when we go through these um how what when you said about um anticipation. Right. It sounds. It seems like a lot of the time that comes from survival instincts. I mean, is is what's your opinion on that? Well, and again, it has a lot to do with uh, you know your core response patterns, how how you approach life. And uh, in, in 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 the new book that I've got, one of the things that I talk about is core response patterns. Uh, the classic ones uh, from the last century were learned helplessness and internal or external locus of control. So learned helplessness, uh, originally they took dogs and they, they shocked them and they couldn't escape from the shocks. And so what they do is they give up. You put them into a new situation where they could easily escape and they don't even try. And then in education, this is a big model because you see a lot of people, especially kids in school and stuff, they've learned that they can't win because of the environment they've grown up in or their parents or whoever. And so they don't try. Um and when when you work with like with adoptive parents, uh, a lot of times you'll get kids that are in learned helplessness. And one of the things you find is if you can give them a, a success experience, then that helps to move them out of that. So like the dogs who are in learned helplessness, if you show them how to physically move them out of the shock, then they start getting up and moving. Uh, they learn, oh, hey, I can get away from this. And so same thing with people, if they can find some success experiences then a lot of times that gives them the concept that well maybe i can succeed at something and that can generalize into other areas of their life uh, the other kind of classic one is internal uh, external locus of control and people with an internal locus of control uh, locus is just a fancy word for center so my center of control is inside of me or is it outside of me so the ones with the internal uh, you know i have some power i have some control i can make things happen the person with the external, it's one well, things just happened to me. I have no control. So if a student with an external locus of control fails at a test, well, it's just because I can't take tests. I'm not good at it. A student with an internal locus of control say, well, you know, I didn't really study like I should have. You know, I could have spent more time looking at the chapter or, you know, looking at some videos or whatever. And I'll do better next time if, if I prepare better. Same thing with it with a person at work. A person with an internal locus of control will say, well, I got the raise because I'm a hard worker and they recognize that a person with an external locus of or center of control. Well, I guess there was nobody else to choose. And so, you know, they just put me in that position. <laughs> 
and again, that's a lot of times has a lot to do with how you're raised as a, as a child, your childhood environment, the types of messages you got from your parents. And so that becomes an automatic response pattern that you have. Um, and so that's something that once you recognize it and identify it, you can change. Um, and, and again, we have lots of different response patterns. Uh, a person who uh, grows up, uh, oh, let's say a child in an environment where there's a lot of violence, right? They might learn that conflict is dangerous. And so that becomes a response pattern. As an adult, whenever they're in a conflict situation, they immediately you know, comply or placate the person. And so then later on, they'll come into therapy. Now, I don't know why I went along with that. I, I really didn't want to. And it's because they have that conflict is dangerous response pattern. That conflict sends off all the danger signals inside of themselves. Uh, another common one is uh, oh, intimacy is painful. So you, a child grows up in a family where every time they try to get close to the parent, they're a drug addict or whatever, and you know the parent distances themselves. They're not available. And so they learn that intimacy is very painful. So now they're in a relationship. There's, things are starting to get close. And what happens? They create distance. They come into therapy. They say, I don't know why. I'm always messing it up. Every time I start to find a nice lady or a nice gentleman, you know, I start to get close. Then I start doing things and I push them away. Well, that's because, again, intimacy has been associated with danger and pain and so they avoid it uh, and again these are things that you can you can change uh, kind of the approach i use is a four-point uh, approach uh, first thing is labeling what the response pattern is and it's very powerful because if you have a label now i can think about it so i'll put simple labels on like you know intimacy is dangerous you know the world is dangerous i can't win whatever it is and again, each of these have an opposite positive, right? So the opposite right. of conflict is dangerous would be, I can manage conflict. I have the ability to do that. The opposite of intimacy is painful is intimacy is great with the right person, right? Uh, so there's always a positive and a negative. And so you want to start to move the, the negatives into a more positive response pattern. So first of all, is you label the negative one. So let's say conflict is dangerous, okay? Okay, and then the next step is you... Uh, identify where does this response pattern come up in my life? And this is what's called a behavioral approach, right? Uh, it's kind of a cognitive behavioral psychodynamic approach. And th these are the three three general approaches that psychology has. Cog behavioral is just changing behaviors. Cognitive is working with your self-talk, like we kind of talked a little bit about earlier. And so psychodynamic is kind of looking at where things came from. Why, why is this unconscious thing happening in my life? that I tend not to be aware of, and I just automatically do it. So you label it, um, let's say conflict is dangerous, and then you identify, well, where does this come up in my life? Well, uh, I never speak up when I'm in a meeting at work. Uh, when I'm at a restaurant and somebody says I shouldn't order something, I don't order it. <laughs> and you come up with just a whole lot of little things like that, and the more specific you can be, the more effective you are. Then you start practicing the opposite positive. Okay, so I'm going to just choose something regardless of what people say at the restaurant, right? Or I'm yeah. going to say at least one little thing at work or, you know, whatever it happens to be. You know, you, you come up with a long list mm -hmm. and you start with the easy ones and you start practicing. them. It's, it's just like working with a fear. You start with the easy situations and you work up with the harder ones. You're essentially desensitizing yourself to conflict and practicing skills, gaining confidence that I can manage it. Sometimes you have to learn some assertive skills too, you know, how to, how to phrase things. And then you also work with the uh, 
the self-talk. Uh, okay, these are things I can tell myself. Okay, I can tell myself I deserve to make choices. You know, it's, yeah. I have the right to speak up. Uh, I have the ability. I've been learning ways to manage conflict more effectively. Uh, and just a, a wide variety of things that you can tell yourself. A lot of times I'll have people even put those on a little card so they look at them once a day just to kind of yeah. get that motivation in their head uh, to give them the, the 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 motivation to start practicing some of the new behaviors. And that's that's a, a general approach that you use that uh, actually is very effective. It's, it's very mechanical because these things are kind of a habit pattern that you've picked up in life. Kind of the way the brain works is it works through associations. And so mm -hmm. when you, and most of what you do is unconscious. I mean, very little right now, your brain is keeping you upright. It's managing all kinds of stuff inside your body. You walk mm -hmm. down the hall, it's looking out for dangers and things that in the past have tripped you up and stuff. And all that stuff's going on at an unconscious level while you're thinking about what you're going to have to eat or what you're going to watch on TV or something you're going to go with a friend, you know, these types of things, which is nice. You know, it's, we don't want to have to think about all that other stuff. Right. That's a lot. <laughs> but again, a lot of times safe things get identified as dangerous, like conflict or intimacy or whatever. Uh, and that's when the problem becomes, because then you, you start responding to it unconsciously without realizing it and it'll bring up anxiety depression anger you know all kinds of stuff that are inappropriate to the situation yeah that's true that, i mean that gives us a lot to really think about and when you are able to actually identify and label and you go down those three four at those four points it really puts it to a perspective where it's like hmm, we can really manage it if you take that first step on just acknowledging that right. this needs to be some something needs to change within yourself. And I think that's the biggest pump that people have is just acknowledging the fact that something needs to change because nobody wants to live in anxiety. Nobody wants to live in fear, but sadly that's a reality for a lot of people. I mean, if you don't mind me asking, why did you dive into emotions? Like what made you realize that this is something that you had to share that you wrote books on? I mean, I was looking on your website and I seen that you have a few books out and they all seem very interesting. Mm -hmm. And I'm just in intrigued, like what made you want to um, share this with the world? Well, I I've always been interested in behavior uh, as a kid. Both my parents uh, grew up in farming backgrounds. So we had chickens and rabbits and dogs and cats and Sometimes okay. we raise some geese or this, whatever. And I was in 4-H and, and, you know, I, I had the only trained chickens on the block. Uh, <laughs> and the, even our, even now our cats, we train them, you know, to sit and, you know, stand and do some stuff if they want to eat. So uh, it, it's been kind of a natural thing when I was uh, going to school uh, way back high school, way back when uh, some of the early uh, work on imprinting and things of that nature uh, were started. Imprinting is just where like a, a a, a bird the first object they see or the first call note that they hear they imprint on that as mom right mm -hmm. and so things like that were being discovered and uh, so i when i got into college i in theology which is animal behavior was something i was interested in and uh, i taught in high school for a little bit and uh, decided to switch from uh, animal behavior to human behavior got my master's in counseling and uh, yeah the rest is history been interested in fact even in uh, high school uh, star trek had just come out and, and sophomore year one of my nicknames was mr spock so oh yeah 
feel emotionless man man well man. It, it's interesting because you know so much of what they have about emotions is wrong you know and so much of what you see on tv and, and read about emotion is just absolutely wrong uh so, emotions are, are part of how how your brain indexes information okay uh when you have an experience uh, if it has importance either positive or negative effect on you your brain will give it an emotional tag if you will and that's how it sorts out what's important and what's not important that's why experiential learning is better than book learning you can read everything there is about re about uh, driving a car but until you get behind the wheel and start practicing it that's when oh my gosh that didn't work or hey this feels pretty good and mm -hmm. with enough of those associations, your brain's able now to take over and automatically do all those behaviors. But it needs that emotional tags to know what's important and what's not important. And that's why experience is, is important to, with whatever we're talking about. It allows your brain to sort the information that you've learned. And that goes on, at, again, at an unconscious level. And that's mm -hmm. why as you walk down the, the hallway, anything in the past that's been an obstacle or danger you know, if it notices that, it'll automatically, you know, pop into your conscious mind. Yeah, that's true. I mean, when you're putting it in those terms, I mean, I'm just reflecting back and I'm like, you know what, that is right. That does happen. But you don't, yeah. you don't realize it because like you said, we are automatically unconsciously doing and thinking and acting and behaving and, and just operating in just this unconscious level that consciously we're not there. <laughs> Well, we yeah. aren't. And again, the nice thing about it is, you know, it takes care of all that stuff we don't have to think about. And and historically, we lived in fairly constant environments. You know, uh, you go back 100, 200 years ago, you know, your environment didn't change a whole lot. The threats stayed fairly constant. The good things stayed very constant. And one of the problems nowadays, of course, is we just have so much change going on and uh you know the world you grow up in is very different from the world you live in as an adult and even as you go through your adult life it, it changes amazingly uh and and it's sometimes it's hard for your brain to keep up with all that stuff you have all these old associations and uh, you just hang on to them and of course if you grow up in a negative environment then you carry all that stuff forward you know all the stuff that got assigned as something that was bad or dangerous on an unconscious level, you carry into adult life. You know, the, the, there was an interesting study in New Zealand, uh, the Dunedin stud, study, and they started in 72, I think it was, and they took every baby born over the course of a year and they started studying them. They did like physical, psychological, sociological, and now this study's been going on for 50 years. They've been following this group of people, right? And it's the best longitudinal study that's ever been done. Uh, and just so many interesting things have come out of it. Uh, one of the things they found is that, uh, for example, uh, children by about the age of three fall into five different categories. And this seems to hold until, you know, as long as they're adults. And, of course, the first category, the big category, is the well-adjusted babies, the ones that are, you know, they, they approach strangers and, you know, they're reasonably courageous and all that type of stuff. And then there's another group, about 25, 27%, something like that, uh, that they call the courageous kids. And those are the kids that jump into stuff, you know, later on, they're doing the skateboarding down the rails and, you know, hang gliding and all that type of stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. 
And yeah. th those two groups do really well unless they're in really negative backgrounds, right? And then the groups that you start to have some problems with is the uh, um, the shy group, uh, reserve. They call them the reserve group. And those are the kids that are a little bit slower to, you know, uh, warm up to people, a little bit more cautious about things. And yet in a healthy environment, they do fine. Uh, my daughter was that way and she's leader of the pack now. So yeah, she does really well. Gets her feelings hurt really easy, but, <laughs> but she does well. So those three groups, if they're in a reasonably healthy background, they do fine. And the groups that tend to have the most problems are the extremely shy kids. And again, if they're in a healthy family, they can emerge and do fine. They'll tend to be as adults more, you know, lay, you know, in the background, not, you know, slower to get out there and do things and stuff. But again, they can be very successful. They'll be an accountant, you know, librarian or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and, and fine and do fine. Uh, but they're in a negative background, they will tend to pull back even more, right? So they can become extremely shy. And the group that had the most problem were the under controlled groups. And these are the kids that uh, are very impulsive uh, with the old marshmallow test uh, where you give them a marshmallow and say, if you wait five minutes, I'll give you a second one. And the kids with good self-control, they will wait, get the second one. They'll distract themselves, look around, do stuff. These kids will gobble that sucker up right up, right? Right away, yeah. And in fact, they found one of the things that's most successful in raising kids is teaching them self-control. If you're going to give them one skill that will do well as an adult is self-control, teaching them that, you know, delayed gratification, those types of things, which unfortunately is the opposite of what a lot of kids do, where they give in to their kids, they're always catering to them, you know, everything's immediate need gratification. And you see the results of that in our emerging uh, culture. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, one of the things, and this is a little bit off the subject for fear, but uh, at the end of the book, I talk about the uh, three things that make people happy. And the first big one, most people can guess, is relationship. Mm -hmm. We are wired for relationship. In fact, we have seven emotional, uh, basic emotions that, that we're wired for. Four of them are for relationship, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, and having deep meaningful relationships one-on-one -on -one, people that you can be totally transparent with uh and that you know they've got your back if you got a few you know two or three people like that in your life you usually don't need a counselor you usually do pretty good what's one of the big problems that a younger generation has <laughs> everything's internet everything's superficial they don't know how to have deep, deep relationships. In fact, the saddest thing in uh, restaurants is to watch parents on their cell phones and the kids on their thing and nobody's talking. There's yeah. no no connection. Exactly. You know, and so that's a big problem. Uh, you know, the other two is purpose, having a purpose in life. And the third one is meaning, you know, what's it all about, Alfie? Uh, why am I here? Is there yeah. something after life, after death? Is there not? What is the purpose of my, my existence? Uh, and that's something, again, that our modern society is very weak in. We tend to be very uh, materialistic. Uh, and we tend to uh, have this need for constant stimulation and entertainment. And uh, it's no wonder that depression, anxiety is rising, especially in the younger populations. It uh, just keeps going up and up and up and up, up. you know, suicide yeah. rates, all that stuff. Goodness, it's it's crazy to know that 
when we leave that that's basically who's going to be running the show and raising the next generation and you don't know we don't know what's going to happen but yeah it's 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 sad to see that people rather have that instant gratification than self-discipline and self-discipline really has long terms and mental health benefits to just practice when it comes to self-discipline and people just don't have that and when we start to implement self-discipline in our lives and we start practicing then we realize like wow life is a lot better you know like life is beautiful I've I've done a social media um, cleanse where I didn't go on social media for over a year and then after that I realized social media is pointless there's no need for social media like I post on social media randomly but in all honesty, it's like, I'm not on it. I don't even go to look on it because at the end of the day, all we are seeing is superficial individuals who are yep. in, just wrapped into it. And it's it's sad to see that. And it brings a lot of fear into the next generation because, I mean, the older generation, because they feel the need to, to stay here. I need to be here. I need to live forever so that these these youngins won't won't take over and and change things but unfortunately change is going to happen either way and i think yeah i think fear of change is one of the biggest problems that people may face is just just the and, when and, they're and, so comfortable in what they're in and and, and let me say, well, yeah, comfort is one of the things that keeps people doing the same thing over and over it's it's, it's or familiar is probably a better term doing what's yeah. familiar as opposed to What's unfamiliar tends to be scary, but you know, social media has its place. Uh, I mean, my son's in Texas, and so I keep tabs on him through Facebook, and that's that's good. And, yeah. uh, the the negative side, of course, is what they call the fear of missing out, and that's a yes. big one. You know, you yeah, see all these curated. Everybody's living a better life than I am, having more fun, yeah. doing yeah, better. Yeah, <laughs> and it's and it's and it's a, and it sucks because you're downplaying you're downplaying what you're doing and and your own goals and your own desires yeah. and your own wants and I absolutely agree there are benefits to social media but as in life I feel that there's benefits in having that balance you know there's if you long well, as you have the, balance then you should be good that, that's the key thing is you have to learn how to use things wisely and mm-hmm. it's it's really easy to get sucked into a negative behavior pattern and you know as you recognize that then you need to take some steps there was a study in i think it was germany but it went one of the eastern or one of the european countries and they had people just reduce their social media for about an hour a day and all their measurements of happiness went up i know they they were using that time for things that were actually better for themselves right Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree on that. And I guess to um, start officially wrapping up the show before it cuts us off, what could be some lasting words that you can leave us off with? Because you already gave us some really great points to really keep us thinking about our own fears and the way that we perceive fears and what we have when, I mean, what we do when we are actually anxious, you know, you gave us some great points that after this episode, I'm really going to start thinking about things differently because sometimes I'm a little anxious and I, and I do that anticipation and it's it's boggles me but when you said it in the way that you did it was just like "Mm, that's that's true i can i can work on this this is something that i know that i can work on but what else can what other what lasting tip that you can leave us with well well i think you know there are tools that you can learn that can help you manage uh, whether it's fear or anger or other issues in your life uh 
there's been a lot of work over the last uh, 50 years that's been very effective at coming up with specific things people can do. And mm -hmm. so if you're struggling in some area of your life, reach out you know, and look for some tools. Uh, I might mention the, the new book, Why You Feel the Way You Do. It's got a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about in it, and that would be in a place that people can go to. Uh, my website is whyemotions.com, so W-H-Y, whyemotions.com. And you can find YouTube videos on a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, uh, anxiety, anger, and that's all free stuff. You know, I've got some download things. Uh, and of course, you, know, you can log into the different books that I've written. So whyemotions.com. Awesome. Awesome. Well, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. You heard it first. I do have his his website on my website. You could just click on his photo and it goes directly to his website. Check it all out. I was on his website and it is very interesting and it really helps you think. And especially if you're on today's show and you're thinking about how to really conquer your fears, well, maybe this is the direction that you really need to go into so that you can really resolve this slump in your life that you feel like is unbear unbearable or impossible impossible <laughs> well that's it that's the show always 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 keep thinking y'all bye